Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and a planet. I'm Kevin Fulta and today is June 12th, 2019. And I normally don't like to mention the dates that the episodes are taking place because I like these to have a little more timeliness. I like the episodes to stand on their own as they travel through time so that people can look back to this archive and find something that maybe the information seems new and fresh because it really is. It's the current most up-to-date information and a timestamp just kind of makes things feel a little bit stale. But today the date is important because it was five years ago today that I sat in my office at home with the same stupid microphone and embarked on this mission to teach people about science and technology using the medium of podcasting. Now this came uh, on the heels of the famous Vern Blazek Science Power Hour where I tried to do the science education using an alias because I didn't really want to do a podcast, but here we are. That didn't work out so hot. When you have people who don't like what you do, you don't throw them red meat of something that even could uh, be twisted into uh, something it's not. So here we are, five years later. And this week, I'll actually produce two independent episodes. The episode tonight is there because I'm a little bit angry. The story of glyphosate is what I refer to as the murder of a molecule. Here, a relatively innocuous chemical compound that I understand intimately, both in how it works and its relative risks, has been maligned in a political takedown against a company. The idea was that if you could convince enough people that this product was dangerous, It would be very easy to be able to attack the technology that the companies use 
uh, to to profit. So in other words, if you they tried for years to take out the crops, saying that they caused cancer and autism and diabetes and obesity, and there was no evidence of that. And the threats got stale because people saw that there's that there's nothing to this and nobody cared anymore. At least most people. But it's easy when you work with a chemical, when it's a pesticide, a fungicide, an herbicide. It ends in a side, which usually means something bad. At least that's the easy way to interpret it. Now here's a chemical which binds specifically to an enzyme in plants. doesn't have any uh, targets outside of that in general that we know of anyway. It uh, could be, of course. But you don't see evidence of it either in the plant or in other organisms when it's treated. We know about its pharmacological fate in human beings that relatively goes right through you. And the claims that it caused cancer, well, they're pretty far-fetched. Whether you're looking at epidemiological data or mechanistic data from uh, in vitro models or animal models, that conclusion just isn't there. And you ask any scientist to look at the data and you, you just don't see it. And sure, you can find these statistical blips in epidemiological models if you crunch multiple reports together in the right way or look at marginal effects from uh, case control studies. So when you have people fill out surveys of the diseases they suffer from and the chemicals they used, you can sometimes see these slight associations, but they're not reproducible. And those are also very low-power tests that when you look at better studies, you don't see the same effect. And all this has been covered on the podcast ad nauseum over the years. Uh, we've discussed this with many individuals that if you go back through the, through the series, you can find lots of good stuff on the chemical glyphosate. So how do you murder a molecule? How do you schedule and, and perpetrate a takedown of an innocuous chemical that you don't like. And this has been done masterfully. When you look at the organizations that are anti-biotechnology or, or, or anti-chemistry, um, which there's quite a few, they constructed a very potent campaign that started with the World Health Organization's IARC, the International Association for the Research on Cancer, the organization that says that the sun, that alcohol, pickled vegetables, third shift work, uh, all of these other coffee um, are problematic, at least in terms of a hazard. Uh, they'll say that coffee is, is, a, is a probable carcinogen. So here we are looking at the change in glyphosate from an innocuous compound based upon all the data that's been assembled over the years to becoming a probable carcinogen in 2015. And with that sparked a landslide of controversy because all of a sudden when you said something was a probable carcinogen, it now gave license to everybody to go out and try to cherry pick information to support the hypothesis that was consistent with the IARC's conclusion. Not to mention all the sleazy stuff that David Zarek has talked about, um, the payoffs and, and the uh, um, elimination of specific evidence from the IARC decision. And we don't have to cover that here. We've covered it previously on the podcast. 
What I want to show today is the popularization of the murder of a molecule. What you have to do to manipulate the major media to continue the campaign and the distortions and the lies. Over the next few minutes, I'll take a look at the CBS News story that ran today. It was about six minutes of fear-mongering and misinformation. And I'll show you how that misinformation has been, has been carefully sculpted to misinform the consumer and show that uh, this compound is indeed dangerous. This is completely contrary to the science, which says something very different. And I'll walk you through that and show you exactly how you as a consumer are being targeted with misinformation that is being perpetrated by a misinformed media that knows that a story about poisoning children is always going to get a significant viewership and tremendous, uh, cause tremendous excitement. If it bleeds, it leads. And nothing better than poisoning children with breakfast cereal to cause that kind of emotional reaction. So here we go. A new study claims some popular oat-based breakfast foods marketed to children have dangerous levels of a chemical some health officials link to cancer. First of all, it's not really a study. At least not a peer-reviewed study. And that's the gold standard. That's where you have independent scientists who may or may not agree with your work. Take a good look at the methods and the materials, the statistics, the number of replicates, the way in which you did the sample prep. These are really important aspects of analytical chemistry. And for an organization that's already proven to be very hostile towards farming and food, to uh, commission uh, measurements in grocery store items, you could kind of already tell how this was going to turn out. I mean, this is the same theme they've had before. They've been screaming about the dirty dozen for years, talking about the foods that contain dangerous levels, by their estimation, of chemistry that really is rather innocuous and is things that are pretty much okay for people to consume in the very low levels that are present. The next part is, is they say that this is uh, chemicals linked to cancer. Now we know that uh, the link, whenever you hear the word linked to cancer, linked to Alzheimer's, linked to whatever, linked is a weenie word. What it means is that there's not sufficient evidence to cause a mechanistic association that is direct. So linked means that in some study somewhere, there was a statistical association that led people to that conclusion, or supported that hypothesis, I should say. So when you hear the word linked, um, put up the radar. The other thing they said is health officials claim. And health officials, well, the IARC is one of, uh, of probably hundreds of regulatory uh, evaluations that have been done. And the IARC simply reviewed literature and left out some important studies and made a hazard-based assessment, meaning that they say that under certain conditions, sure, maybe this does have some sort of problem. The IARC also says the same thing about coffee, suntans, and night shift work, and pickled vegetables, and red meat, forget about it, you know, alcohol, you know, that, that stuff's off the charts. So, that's the first part of this. Now, back to the news. The nonprofit Environmental Working Group says 26 samples from Quaker and General Mills products contained unsafe levels of the weed killer glyphosate. Mm. 
So the Environmental Working Group, the organization that's committed to maligning farming and the chemicals that are used in it, says that the levels are unsafe. Now, who are they to determine if something is unsafe? I mean, they've been claiming that fruits and vegetables are killing us for years and sadly turning people away from the most important things that they should be eating. So here's an organization that says they're unsafe and CBS News falling for it, not asking the Environmental Working Group, well, what makes you a regulatory authority? What do you base your safety evaluation on? What data? Because there is none. It's an arbitrary benchmark that the EWG says this is um, over the levels that we've identified, therefore it's unsafe. In August, we reported on their first study. It found 31 samples of other oat-based products, including some organic, contained the chemical. Last year, the same group applied the same type of quote-unquote study to evaluate the presence of this stuff on different food items. And the reason this is um, questionable is a couple of reasons. First, every food that you make into an analytical prep is a little bit different, has different extraction methods that you have to make specific for that particular, as we say, matrix. You can't just generically use one protocol for everything, and these folks haven't reported what the protocols are. I have a funny feeling that they've used a common protocol for everything, but of course there's no way to judge that. One way you can judge that is because they said it's detected in organic products as well. Now, if you're like me, you trust organic farmers and know that they are unlikely to use glyphosate as a, especially as a, um, as a drying agent. Okay, and that's where glyphosate is used in grains. That at the end of the season, because they're not genetically engineered, at the end of the season, you spray with glyphosate or some other type of herbicide to dry out the crop, especially when it's been moist and the crop is non-uniform in terms of its moisture. The addition of the herbicide helps everything become more uniform for easier harvest and more complete harvest with less loss. The fact that it was detected on organic products really is a red flag for me because organic farmers would not risk their livelihood and the reputation of their industry and the higher prices it garners by using a product which is forbidden for use in that particular production scenario. So this causes me to take a deep breath and kind of pause on all of the data that if they're seeing it in what should be a negative control then do we really trust the other data? Ann Orner is here with some of the new findings. Anna, good morning. Good morning, Nora. Glyphosate is an herbicide used on farms across the U.S. The powerful chemical kills weeds, but it's controversial because it's been classified by the World Health Organization as probably carcinogenic to humans. Once again, big mistake. The World Health Organization did not classify it as a probable carcinogen. It was one of several agencies within the World Health Organization, namely the IARC. And in a very controversial decision, they made glyphosate, or claimed that glyphosate, had the same hazard as um, other types of products, like pickled vegetables or third shift work, at least with respect to potential to cause cancer. The World Health Organization after this happened, commissioned a separate group to study this, and this was their joint 
uh, gosh, I should know this, the, the Joint Group on Pesticide um, Evaluation. And they said from the World Health Organization that under normal use in its normal applications, glyphosate does not pose a carcinogenic risk. Those were the words from the World Health Organization. Once again, this environmental group is warning that many of the breakfast foods you enjoy could be bad for you. There's really no reason consumers should have to worry about whether they're getting a dose of glyphosate with their breakfast every morning. Now, I want you to listen to that sentence again. Listen to this carefully. This is Scott Faber. Scott's a pretty bright guy. I like Scott. Despite the fact that I hate his organization. I think Scott is a pretty sharp dude, and I met him one time at a meeting and had a good conversation with him. But I I really want you to listen again carefully to what he says, knowing that he is a really sharp guy. Listen to what Scott said. There's really no reason consumers should have to worry about whether they're getting a dose of glyphosate with their breakfast every morning. Now, spoken like a true politician, someone who's in an NGO that really is a sinking ship as technology advances, that sees an expiration date on their misinformation, that realizes their lack of gravity and the the old fear-mongering approaches of the dirty dozen, Scott sees his future in a different place. And he can say, I never said it was dangerous. And he can say that with a straight face. Because he said, consumers shouldn't have to worry about whether they're getting a dose of this or not. Let's listen one more time. There's really no reason consumers should have to worry about whether they're getting a dose of glyphosate with their breakfast every morning. Now listen how the investigative journalist from CBS News follows that up. That was the environmental working group Scott Faber in August, talking about a study his group commissioned that found the weed killer glyphosate in dozens of breakfast products. Last August, the same group made the same claims, saying they could detect this chemical in different breakfast products. Again, the levels were exceedingly low, well below any standards which have been recommended as acceptable daily intake limits. Let's see what else they say. We're very concerned that consumers are eating more glyphosate than they know. Now, a second round of testing shows 28 more samples analyzed contain glyphosate residues, 10 samples from General Mills Cheerios products, and 18 samples from Quaker brand products ranging from instant oatmeal to snack bars. 26 of the samples came back with residue levels higher than what the group believes is safe for children. Who cares? what the group believes. Why don't we care about what science knows? An NGO whose job it is to malign food and farming, to cause suspicion about our food system and to promote specific production systems, makes a claim about cereal and its effects on children with a threshold they defined. We think it's dangerous. Where did their threshold come from? Well, if you look at the thresholds that are used in the state of California, another place with kind of wacky ideas with respect to chemistry, 
the levels are much, much lower than what's acceptable by the EPA and FDA, other organizations, or especially the FDA, which caught, which place these limits in terms of acceptable daily intake. The levels are massively below that. You would have to eat something like a massive number of servings in order to achieve the uh, daily intake. The California rules are much lower than that. Probably, I don't remember the numbers now, but probably on the order of 10% of what, um, or I'm sorry, the FDA prescribed. EWG says, well, even those California levels are a little bit high because if we're talking about kids, uh, kids are little and they can eat a lot less of this stuff, so we're going to make those levels even lower. And that's where this group's threshold, which has nothing to do with science but just on their hunch and their agenda, is what is driving their assessment. And again, CBS News reports it as though it's scientific gospel. What else do they talk about? General Mills says trace amounts of pesticides are found in the majority of food we all eat, and the company follows the very strict rules set by the FDA and EPA, who determine the safe levels for food products. Quaker told us that any minimal levels of glyphosate that may remain in finished products are significantly below regulatory limits and well within compliance of the safety standards. Now I'm going to give Quaker and General Mills a big buzzer too. (laughs) Dummies. So here they come out and talk about, well, you know, yeah, it's there and it's perfectly safe. Don't worry about it. You know, the whole idea of trusting big corporations with food is something that has had some very justifiable erosion over the years. And so here's a case where they really need to really recraft their messaging. Personally, I understand exactly what is there, and I don't see that this is a particular risk. But they have to come out and say, well, there's nothing to, you know, they can't come out and say nothing to see here. What they have to come out and say is, yes, you can detect anything if you look for it. Our chemistry is extremely good, and it's the same chemistry that we use to ensure the safety of our consumers. That consumer safety is job one, because without our consumers and their confidence in our food that we make, we don't have a business. We're doing everything we possibly can to understand where these come from in the supply chain and minimize your family's exposure. Now, that's at least what I would do. But the companies dig themselves into a hole that really you can see how the tail wags the dog. But this is all part of the murder of a molecule. It's activist efforts to malign a compound and then the uh, kind of uh, tone-deaf response that companies typically give uh, in, in responding to the consumer fears. But the World Health Organization says glyphosate is a probable carcinogen in humans. Since they bring it up again, we'll bring it up again too. The World Health Organization did not say that glyphosate was a probable carcinogen. Instead, it was the IARC, an agency of the World Health Organization, which has a traditionally extremely conservative view based on the literature study and synthesis that different compounds could have the potential, under some circumstances, to be carcinogenic. 
And there's lots of discussion about how they came to that conclusion. But it's a conclusion that is not shared by the majority of regulatory agencies, actually by none of them, um, regulatory agencies around the world. And they're not talking about an agency or two that's driven by a company. We're talking about agencies worldwide that have evaluated the safety of this product since the 1970s and done so on a rolling basis. That maybe every so many years they'll do it again and update themselves based on the current literature. This has been a highly scrutinized compound. The World Health Organization has not said it is a probable carcinogen. In fact, they even questioned the findings of their own agency. And the state of California lists it as a chemical known to the state to cause cancer. And what isn't? There are more things known to cause cancer in the state of California than there are things that don't. And uh, whether it's recently, coffee almost had to carry a warning label in California. And only a very powerful lobby was able to stop that. So California is a special place because of Proposition 65, which basically lumps in all kinds of um, compounds or situations uh, into the cancer-causing hopper. You can't walk into Disney World without seeing a sign that says, this place causes cancer. (laughs) I even bought a roll of fence, of welded wire fence a few months ago that uh, I brought home and it says, this fence uh, could cause cancer in the state of California. And I thought, good thing I'm using it in Florida. (laughs) Okay, here's more. I find the results of this report concerning. Dr. Philip Landrigan, a pediatrician and one of the world's experts on children's environmental health, advises parents to move away from brands containing glyphosate and buy organic products for their children that do not contain the chemical. Well, good luck with that, because even according to the Environmental Working Group study from last August, even organic products contain glyphosate. Now, of course, I say that's insane, that there's no way that they could. But it calls to question the durability of these particular data. What it means is that we need to have better independent sources who are doing this work, not the Environmental Working Group. It's work that we could do if we had the money, but it takes a lot of time to do it right, and an awful lot of money. Just to do the extraction protocols on a single uh, type of matrix could take months That's why I really question the results of these studies. Philip Landrigan, well, Dr. Landrigan is uh, actually a doctor who did a lot of work with uncovering the effects of lead on children years ago. And, you know, I've I've seen him over the years, and he really has adopted, um, you know, it's very much a, when you're a hammer, the world looks like a nail. And there's no discussion of dosage or of mechanism of action when we talk about chemicals. He's very much from the school of, if the number isn't zero, it's bad, which falls in very well with the media's fear-based messaging, as well as the environmental working group's um, agenda of anything greater than zero is unacceptable. Children are exquisitely vulnerable to toxic chemicals such as glyphosate. Even a tiny dose that would probably be harmless to an adult carries much greater risk for a child. Again, a statement based on zero evidence and completely ignorant of the ideas of dose and mechanism of action, which is the way you have to think about any chemical compound. How does it interact with the body and at which threshold does it become problematic? 
these are the things that we can learn from careful analysis of either in vitro studies, meaning in a test tube, in animal models, which sometimes can approximate the effects on humans, and then in epidemiological studies by looking at populations and seeing what the effects are when we have some levels of exposures. We just don't see any evidence to back up the claim that he just made. Well, Monsanto, which sells products containing glyphosate, says the study is misleading. It says the chemical is safe and it maintains it does not cause cancer. Monsanto also says that adults would have to eat huge quantities of these foods every day to exceed the EPA's limit for glyphosate exposure. You wonder how long it would take for them to bring up the M word. Now, as far as I'm concerned, as last I checked, Monsanto isn't even a company anymore, so I'm not sure how they're getting uh, you know, messages from the grave of a company long gone now um, to respond to these types of claims. Instead, uh, it's probably just the idea that you need to fold in that name for the brand recognition of the you know, bad company that can't get anything right, right? So that's part of it. They also say that the company would claim that you would have to eat you know, huge amounts. They don't say exactly what those huge amounts are. Because if you start to put this in the context by saying 2,000 kilograms or you know, 1,000 pounds or 4,000 pounds, whatever it is, um, once you start to talk about those numbers, the fear-mongering doesn't work. What's next? General Mills says food safety is a top priority, and Quaker stands by its products. So I'm sitting at home watching you this morning. What should I do? I'm well, worried about Honey Nut Cheerios. So if you listen to uh, Dr. Landrigan, who specializes in children's environmental health and has for a long time, he would tell you that children are very sensitive to small amounts of chemicals. Uh, they take in more food per pound of body weight than adults do, mm-hmm. and so that, that exposes them higher and they're more sensitive. Well, if you want my advice, don't eat Honey Nut Cheerios. If you look at the number of grams of sugar that are being uh, taken in per bit of food, plus all the carbohydrate in there and other forms, uh, probably some fiber and some good stuff too, and lots of vitamins they fortify. But that is probably more toxic to your body than uh, the trace amounts in parts per billion, which we haven't discussed yet. It didn't come up anywhere in this discussion. We're talking parts per billion. That's seconds in 32 years. Parts per billion. So in excessively small numbers that are below what could possibly be a threshold for any type of um, effect inside a, a human system, especially at the levels in which they're seen. The other thing she brought up is, you know, here's Landrigan again saying, well, children are exquisitely sensitive. There's a problem with children. Again, no idea of dose, no idea of mechanism of action. And unless you know how it's affecting things and the doses it, which it becomes problematic, you can't make those claims. There's more. And he really uh, believes that parents should look out for the kids in terms of trying to make sure that they do not ingest chemicals as much as possible. He says try to move toward organic. And again... The Environmental Working Group's own study showed that organic products contained detectable levels of glyphosate. 
so they could detect it in organic ones too. So why uh, Landrigan or anyone else would recommend that is beyond me. See, it's not about the presence or absence of tiny, minuscule amounts of this chemical. It's about fear, it's about affecting children, and it's about changing the buying habits of people who wish to feed their children something healthy. That's what this is. And the reason it's so insidious is because many people can't afford organic. And so when you can't afford organic and you're being told that the non-organic equivalents are poison, causing cancer, which no one's ever shown, people don't buy anything. Or they buy junk food. Or they spend money they don't have to buy an organic equivalent. This to me is much, much more of a threat than parts per billion seconds in 32 years of an innocuous chemistry that's been used for decades in farming. Um, the Quaker says it's safe. So Quaker and General Mills are saying, look, there's a lot of this in our foods, and especially if you're an adult. You know, Monsanto says if you're an adult, you'd have to eat ridiculous amounts of these foods to expose yourself. Um, but there is, a, and so there is that debate, but I think... Oh, geez. There's that debate. I don't know that there's much of a debate. If you talk to scientists who understand these products and what they are and know the chemistry, there isn't a debate there. The debate is happening between NGOs bringing in and folding in the public and a concerned public after they've been told that they've been poisoned. They also, in the last statement, said that uh, Quaker and General Mills say that there's a large amount in our food. No, there's not. Again, parts per billion. And if anything, we should thank analytical chemists for being able to detect something that is present on the edge of nothing. It's amazing that you can detect that. Yet we can. And that's being exploited to scare people about their food. We're almost done. Um, people who specialize in children are saying that they are concerned about this. Yeah. But the question is who? Who's concerned other than you know, the guy who has uh, always been concerned and doesn't uh, even understand the idea of dosage and mechanism? Anybody who understands what this stuff is, how it works in plants, how sparingly it's used at, uh, uh, at 750 milliliters, like two soda cans per acre, that the residues are almost not there and they're not problematic by any current method of analysis. So I'm curious who these experts are who say they're concerned. Especially for kids and for parents, right? The kids, yeah. I think it's good information for people to know. Thank you, Anna. Yeah, thank you, Anna. Thank you for giving me a good opportunity to dissect a good example of how the media are used by NGOs and other activists to scare people about their food. How what isn't a study is portrayed as a study. What are not dangerous levels are described as dangerous levels. Throw in a physician who will say anything about uh, chemistry that he doesn't understand and, um, and the fear-mongering that can happen around food and farming. It's the perfect prescription for how you scare parents away from the food and change food choice. And it's happening. It works. 
But what I try, hope to try to achieve by this podcast is something very simple. And that is a durable record that there are some of us that are going to fight the misinformation. Now, as I said in the beginning, it's, you know, June 12th, 2019. At some point in the future, we'll look back on this and look at the murder of a molecule. Once that product is taken away from farmers, we have to resort to other methods which are not as productive. We see the rise in food costs. We see the erosion of land as we can't continue no-till or conservation till farming. This is what's going to happen if we lose this product. And I have a funny feeling that we just might. But this is how it happens. You develop a groundswell of, a, of support through misinformation that permeates the media and is delivered to homes through television and, and, and other media sources on an almost daily basis. I took the time to dissect this, not because I care about companies or because I care about, you know, a, a, you know what the uh, Monsanto Bayer or whatever product is. There are dozens and dozens of companies that make glyphosate. But most important, there are millions of farmers that use it all over the world, too. It's really an important part of being able to farm sustainably, that being able to use less fuel, less labor, and have better effects on the environment because of the low amounts that are used, the low impacts on the environment, and the fact that it allows a conservation or no-till scenarios. That is, not disrupting the ground because you're able to remove the weeds without tillage. That's my big interest. And of course I'm interested in human health. And the minute that I see something come out on this that is convincingly problematic, I absolutely would change my mind. But after many, many years of looking at this carefully, I haven't seen it yet. Maybe it'll be here tomorrow. But until that time, I have to play by the rules that science gives us and trust the data and trust the scientists and the reproducible studies by independent laboratories that have shaped regulatory policy. Thank you once again for listening. We start year five of the Talking Biotech podcast. 935,000 downloads later, we'll top a million sometime this year, and I really appreciate you listening. So, Think about the farmers that are using these products. Think about the people that provide us our food. My name is Kevin Fulta. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.